Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's science, but not as you know it. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Hello. Now, in this week's programme, we're going to be finding out how the common cold caught off us humans is actually killing off chimpanzees in Africa, why chameleons change colour and it's not all for camouflage, and also why you should shed a tear for the humble onion because now researchers have invented a new one that can't make you cry anymore. And we'll be finding out how it works in just a moment. Helen. Thanks, Chris. This week, we're immersing ourselves in the science of wetlands, including going to the bottom of what causes dead zones, which are huge patches of the ocean in which nothing can survive. We'll also be hearing how wetlands can, strangely enough, protect us from flooding and why they're in danger of disappearing. Plus, there's a breath of fresh air in this week's Question of the Week. How is oxygen made and recycled in the International Space Station? So keep listening to find out how we can keep astronauts' air fresh for them. Chris? Thank you, Helen. So if you've got a question for us about the science of wetlands, then do get in touch. Email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. First up, let's have a look at some of this week's key news stories. And this one caught my eye as a virologist, which is that primatologists have discovered that chimpanzees over in the Ivory Coast in Africa are catching diseases that us humans dish out. In other words, the common cold to us, but it's killing them. This is a researcher called Sophie Condren, and she's actually from the Robert Koch Institute in Berlin. And she's been studying outbreaks of respiratory disease amongst these chimpanzees between 1999 and 2006. And looking at each of the outbreaks, they find that 92% of the animals show symptoms. They get runny nose and and, uh, audible wheeze, and 20% of them die. And the predominant numbers of deaths are amongst the juveniles of very young animals, so it's similar to humans I suppose, where the young get most affected and when they analysed clinical samples collected from the animals that had died throughout these outbreaks the same two culprits kept cropping up time and time again, and they analysed them and it's two viruses, one called RSV or respiratory syncytial virus and the other one called HMPV which is human metanumovirus an only recently discovered human pathogen now initially people thought well perhaps these viruses are just other members members of this virus family they're not the same ones that affect humans when they molecularly or genetically fingerprinted the viruses though they show some characteristic changes very specific changes which had only recently cropped up in the human strains that are circulating including strains found in south africa and south america so it looks like what's happening is that people getting into close proximity to the animals are allowing the human bugs to jump into the chimps and they're infecting them, but because the chimp isn't the natural host, they're getting much sicker, much iller, and this is why they die. Is that how we know it hasn't gone the other way, that we know it hasn't gone from the apes to to us? Yes, because normally viruses become very well adapted to their hosts, and so what you want with a virus is for you to become very infectious 
but not to die because if you delete your host from the from the population then there's uh, no nowhere else for you to go and there's not no point in doing that so you want to become highly infectious in your host but not actually wipe them out entirely. And if you look at flu, it does the same thing. So that's why they think it's gone in that direction, because these are natural human infections. Um, what can we do to mitigate the disaster? Well, what they're suggesting is that we limit public exposure to chimpanzees. thing is that tourism brings in a lot of money, and if you make something worthwhile, then people in those areas think, well, if it has value, we should conserve it. So you need the tourism and you need the money coming in to conserve things. So what are they doing instead? Well, they're suggesting perhaps we should encourage people to wear face masks. This might actually cut down the infectivity. At least there's something we can do about it. Now, something we all know about some other creatures that live in, in the rainforests of the world are those colourful chameleons, which are masters of disguise that can change the way they look to blend perfectly with their surroundings to hide away from would-be predators that they're just too slow to be able to run away from. Now, we might expect that the need to camouflage themselves must have been the reason for chameleons to first evolve this ability to change colour. But now a new study from researchers Devi Stewart-Fox and Adnan Musali from Australia have come up with support for an alternative theory. Now, it could be that chameleons adopted their colourful lifestyles not to blend in, but instead to be as conspicuous as possible so they could communicate with each other, in particular for males to display their dominance over other males while they're disputing over female mates. Because for a long time people have thought it's just because they want to lurk in the background and not get seen. That's absolutely right. Well, this, this other idea, you know, has now got a bit more support for it because these guys went out to the, West, the African rainforests and conducted what I have to say are some rather bizarre experiments on African dwarf chameleons. Now, what they did is they set up a series of duels between competing males to see which chameleon uh, became the most flamboyantly coloured during battles for supremacy. The winner generally displays his victory with a gaudy, bright, colourful suit while the loser admits defeat and creeps away coloured licenses dull and drab uh, in contrast. So the researchers essentially placed two different males on the same branch and waited until a fight broke out. They then measured the colours of the winning and the losing males using a gadget that determines the wavelength of colour that's bounced off an object. Now what they found, that they also used the same technique to measure the colour of the surrounding vegetation that each of these species of chameleon tends to be found in. Um, and uh, what they found was that the chameleon species showing the most dramatic colour changes were also putting on the most eye-catching displays for other chameleons, making themselves really obvious against the surrounding vegetation that they're normally found in. And they also found that the chameleons that they studied that had the greatest colour change don't live in particularly variable habitats. They actually live in quite uniform backdrops. So it's not that they're actually changing colour to blend in because their, their, their backgrounds are actually more boring than they are, really. So it's really, I think, it's a rather neat little experiment providing some, some benefit to this other theory. And they think, the researchers think it could be that originally colour change was for thermoregulation. It was actually to help them kind of keep their body temperatures high. But then maybe after that, chameleons just went crazy so they could communicate with each other. I don't think they're boring at all. I think, um, in fact, the way in which they change colour is ingenious because they have these specialised cells called chromatophores that are allow arranged in layers and they're connected to the animal's nervous system. And inside these cells they have these tiny vesicles, these pockets of pigment or colour, and when the nervous system signals that particular cell, it discharges the pigment and allows it to spread out throughout the cell and that changes the colour of the cell. And in the same way as a television set puts lots of different coloured red, green and blue dots together to, to make different colours, chameleons do the same trick and so they can produce almost any colour. I think, I think it's absolutely ingenious. Oh, and the same, the same sort of trick is used in things like um, cuttlefish. Cuttlefish <laughs> and uh, frogs as well, toads and things like that can change colour as well. It's brilliant. Now, Helen, who won't be shedding a tear for what vegetable this week? Question for you. 
Is this a joke, Chris? No, no, it's a, it's a serious science story. <laughs> so it's about onions, right? Yes, it is about onions. Yeah, why, why won't they be shedding a tear in future? I think we've been messing with them, haven't we? Well, delicately put. Um, this is actually the work of Colin Eady. He's a researcher from New Zealand Crop and Food Research, and they have based some work on a discovery made by Japanese scientists about five years ago which, uh, in which they found the gene which makes onions make you cry. And so they have oh. successfully made a genetically modified onion that can't make you cry. Good um, news for me. The background to this is that onions have building blocks in them called amino acid sulfoxides. So these are sulfur-containing chemicals. They give onions their pungent taste and flavour. And when you cut into an onion, you release from the cells an enzyme which is normally locked away called alanase. And the alanase acts on these amino acid sulfoxides and turns them into an intermediate chemical called sulfenic acid. And this sulfenic acid, the Japanese scientists have found, gets devoured or broken down by an enzyme which is called lacrimatory factor synthase for lacrimator, mean Latin I cry, lacrimo I cry. And this is how you actually make this chemical which is called synpropanethial S oxide, which is the irritant which gets into your eye and it will irritate the front of the eye because it's densely supplied by nerve fibres and it makes you cry. So the researchers have used something called gene silencing to switch off lacrimatory factor synthase so that the onions have all of the same flavour compounds because if you fiddle with the flavour compounds to stop it making this stuff, it won't taste like an onion. But if you stop it making this final end product that makes you cry, it'll still taste like an onion but it won't make you cry. So they're saying that there's lots of benefits because you won't actually end up with any, any of the sort of downsides of genetically tinkering with the onion. Well, it sounds like a good idea to me, although it seems to be going to rather extraordinary lengths. I just tend to put my diving mask on when I'm chopping onions and that cuts all the vapours out. There is another eyes. way of doing it, of course. You can. One person, folklore, says if you light a candle when you chop onions, because synpropanethial S oxide is flammable, then the candle ought to reduce the amount of the amount of vapour in the atmosphere. It'll burn it off. I don't, I don't really believe that. The other possibility is you can cut your onions underwater. Underwater, I've heard But it depends, can you hold your breath for long enough? <laughs> Take a snorkel like I do. Now, today's programme is about wetlands, so I'm going to get the ball rolling with a piece of science news from Canada. Now, if I was to ask you to think of an aquatic animal that has the ability to change its environment and alter the course of streams and rivers, you would most probably come up with dam-building beavers. Beavers, yeah. Absolutely. But now a new study out this week from researchers based at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver have identified an another environmental moulding species, which is the salmon. Now, salmon spend most of their lives at sea before they undergo an incredible gruelling migration back up rivers to inland freshwater spawning grounds, often leaping up waterfalls and getting caught by bears as they go. And when they arrive, each female lays her eggs in a hollow in the riverbed, which is called a red. And she excavates this hollow using her wide tail, a bit like a gardener's hoe. Um, and as she does this, as you can imagine, she stirs up lots of sediments that actually get swept away in the current. Now, until now, scientists have long suspected that spawning salmon might have a profound influence on the flow of rivers by stirring up the riverbed but no one has actually investigated just how much of an effect they can have so by setting up sediment traps along rivers in British Columbia researcher Marwan Hassan has discovered for the first time that around half the sediments that flow down a river in a year come from this upstream activity of spawning salmon which is oh, a huge amount sure, that, that just sounds outlandishly huge what about when there's the rivers in flood and there's a really big current flowing surely, surely it can't I think be the they same. even keep taking that into account and it seems that they are almost interacting with the how the flood waters behave and where they move to so this really is incredibly profound um, influence that the salmon are having um, so for example in the headwaters salmon they deepen channels by stirring up the mud and this grit flows downstream and ends up in channels and pools much lower down and they're actually doing a really 
important job because they're not only stirring up sediments, they're stirring up oxygen. So that's what all the other animals in the river need. And it, it's a really important study, like you say, it's a quite a profound effect it's having. And it's going to affect the way that we actually res, um, research and manage damaged waterways, which is something we're going to be talking about later in the show. So there will be knock-on impacts for other animals because if you take the salmon effect away, although the erosion might go down a bit, then you're saying it's returning nutrients and oxygen back into the it's, water for other things to eat. Absolutely, that, that it's all a very important part of the system. And I think having the salmon there to do this erosion is, is part of the way the river's adapted and it's all very important. So, yeah. Ain't life complicated. Thanks, Helen. It's The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Helen. We're talking wetlands today and in a short while we'll be venturing to the Louisiana wetlands. Louisiana, of course, is the home of New Orleans. It was the home of Hurricane Katrina, unfortunately, not so long ago, but also voodoo Mardi Gras. Find out more about that in a second. But also some of the world's biggest tracks of wetlands. But what do wetlands actually do? Well, we'll be finding out how they can stop this phenomenon called dead zones in oceans. This is where you end up with a sterile patch of water that will literally support no life. We'll be finding out what they are and why they happen. If you'd like to join in the discussion, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Now, we've got a great kitchen science coming up later on in the programme when we're going to be making some strange sounds using a detuned radio and a remote control. But in Kitchen Science a few weeks ago, we showed you how you can use a digital camera to see the infrared signal which is being sent out by a remote control, like your TV remote control, or some people have remote controls for their computers. Now, remotes are obviously one of our favourite toys for Kitchen Science, but we decided we'd take this whole thing a step further and we found a way to adjust a webcam that you might attach to your computer to, so that it only takes pictures in the infrared. Now, if you want to do it, we've got a step-by-step guide to making your own infrared camera. It's on our website. It's at nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. You can see it on there. Um, but we were pretty amazed at the results even ourselves when we started taking pictures. Um, one of the things we photographed, Helen, was a £5 note. And when you look at this, just under infrared, half of the Queen's face and head is missing. They've obviously used an ink, which is sensitive just to visible light, but it's totally invisible to infrared, so is that's that interesting. Is that important for sort of saying that there's a forgery? Is that the whole exactly. point? Exactly. It's, it's a sort of clever way. By using inks that respond to different wavelengths of light, you can flush out forgeries. Um, and you can also see, and this is really striking, the difference between an energy-saving and a conventional light bulb, because energy-saving light bulbs are all the rage at the moment. People are saying that they're much more efficient. When you look at them in infrared, you can see that they're putting out the same amount of light but the amount of heat coming out of the non-energy efficient light bulb is huge. So in other words, it's showing you how much energy it's wasting just by turning into, into loads of wasted heat that, that actually you, you can't make any useful use of because you can't see heat. Absolutely, and there's, there's another aspect that we didn't really bargain for when we got into all this. We asked people on our forum about it, and we got this message from Cameron Lapworth, who says, Hi, I'm a science teacher. This is a fantastic thing for me in the classroom. It works really great, so thanks. But he goes on to say that one word of warning for any other <laughs> teachers who plan to use this in class. Apparently, he pointed it at his wife, and what glowed rather wonderfully from beneath her... Um, outer layers of clothing, shall we say, was her bra. Um, so let's maybe not take this, this or direct it at young, impressionable girls in the classroom, perhaps. That's a schoolboy's dream, isn't it? I mean, we always wanted to do that. Make you X-ray on. camera or something. So anyway, so if you do that experiment, then be careful where you point our camera that we've showed you how to make. Now, we had a question last time, I think you were on the show, actually, Helen, which was from Johannes Gunnarsson, who said, what's the wattage of a burning candle? And thankfully, we had a visitor on our forum. He calls himself Bored Chemist, and he gave us the answer... 
He assures us that the original standard candles burned a waxy substance that was called spermaceti. It's called that because it comes from sperm whales. So the best that we have today is, of course, petroleum-based wax, so we've got to compare for that. But the standard candle, he says, would burn 120 grains of spermaceti in an hour. Now, that's 8 grams. Right. And now, board chemist worked out for us that this means that it burns uh, 2.16 milligrams, or about two thousandths of a gram of spermaceti every second. And if we know how much energy is in a gram of the stuff, we can work out its wattage, which is essentially the energy per second of the candle. Now, assuming that spermaceti uh, is similar to a typical type of fat or oil, we can see that it gets about 37 kilojoules of energy per gram, and the candle was burning two thousandth of a gram each second, which gives us a power of about 80 watts. Now, the reason it isn't as bright as an 80-watt light bulb is because it's really inefficient. And then most of that 80 watts is actually given out as heat. So not like the energy efficient light bulbs, most of the stuff coming off candles is heat, with only about 0.05% of it, not very much at all, coming out as light. So there you have it. I'm glad we were able to answer that. And thank you for the person who who is board chemist who got onto our site and managed to answer it for us. Thank you. If you've got a question for us, you can send it in. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. Coming up very shortly, we'll be venturing towards Louisiana to find out about the science of wetlands and also finding out how wetlands can paradoxically protect us from flooding here in the UK. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. Now it's time for another one of Cambridge University's rising stars. Each week we hear from a young researcher about their work. Now this week's star is Caroline Stokes, who tells us why eating fish might make you happy, even if you're a vegetarian. Could something in your diet be making you feel low? Can the foods you eat possibly help or hinder your mental health? How would you feel if you were told that you could improve your mental well-being by some small improvements in your diet? The phrase, you are what you eat, might soon be adapted to you feel what you eat. Research is beginning to show that our diets not only influence our physical health, but can affect our mental health too. Most of us experience low mood at some stage in our lives, while some will have an episode of clinical depression. Depression is a major public health problem. Between 5 and 10% of the UK population are suffering from depression at any one time. In fact, over a lifetime, we all have a 20% chance of suffering an episode of depression. That's one out of every five listeners right now. People with clinical depression often feel low mood or loss of interest and pleasure in usual activities, which last for at least two weeks. Some studies have shown specific nutrients can have beneficial effects on low mood and depression, for example, omega-3 fatty acids and folic acid. But an important point to mention is that there is a lot of inconclusive evidence supporting the benefits of omega-3 fatty acids, and many studies are often questioned in terms of their study design and scientific validity. So the conclusions drawn from these studies should be taken with a pinch of salt. Please excuse the pun. But going back to the scientific evidence for the benefits of omega-3 fatty acids on depression, one study looking at people with clinical depression gave half of them an omega-3 fatty acid capsule and the other half a placebo capsule. The subjects did not know which capsule they were taking, but after 12 weeks, those receiving the capsule containing the omega-3 fatty acid had marked improvements in their feelings of depression compared to those receiving the placebo. You can boost your intake of omega-3 fatty acids by eating oily fish such as salmon, mackerel, herrings, sardines and fresh tuna. Folic acid, which is a B vitamin, is found in green leafy vegetables and fortified breads and breakfast cereals. But don't get hung up on eating one particular food. 
because good dietary habits, including eating breakfast and plenty of fruits and vegetables, and having a home cooked meal in the evening as a family, are also suggested to protect against depression. That's certainly food for thought and certainly all very sensible advice, I think, for, for eating healthily. At the end there, that was Caroline Stokes explaining how a fishy diet or even just eating with your family is a great way of staving off depression. It's true, though, isn't it? When you don't eat properly, if you're feeling a bit fed up, you don't cook properly for yourself, so you don't eat properly. And it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? I think so. And I think eating together and making it more of an event is one of those reasons they say why the, the, the French... Um, are actually much healthier than they should be compared to how much <laughs> the French sort of paradox. fat and uh, and wine that they drink. It's partly to do with their kind of social occasion of it, and they take time and don't scoff their food down. <laughs> There's a lesson for this yeah. all, for us all in that. Absolutely. Now we are talking about the science of wetlands in this week's Naked Scientists, and February the second was Worldwide Wetland Day, WWD rather than WWW, I suppose. But so to find out a bit more about what you can see at your local wetlands, we decided to send our reporter Mira to the London Wetland Centre, which is not a pretty sight on foot, and that's partly because it's in the flight path of Heathrow Airport but Mira wandered around the 43 hectares they've got there which is reed beds, lakes, lagoons and such like to find out not only about the species on show but how these ecosystems are actually protecting us humans as well as the wildlife that live there. This week I'm at the London Wetland Centre on the banks of the River Thames to find out just what goes on in these ecosystems. Wetlands can be found all over the world as bogs, marshes, swamps and fens to name just a few. And they house a great diversity of wildlife that can't be found anywhere else. This is because of conditions specific to this ecosystem, such as soil that is so waterlogged that there's very little room for oxygen. Therefore, the plants you get in those particular wetlands are hydrophytes, meaning water-loving, and they've adapted to survive with minimal oxygen. Now that's just one type of wetland condition, and the numerous wetland variations are not only important to wildlife populations, but to humans as well. So I'm here to find out why. I'm out in the sheltered lagoon here on the site with Martin Senior and Adam Salmon, who both work for the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. Martin, what exactly is a wetland? Well, a wetland's habitat where there's water, so things like streams, ponds, uh, rivers, canals, even you know your local duck pond or stream, they're, they're all wetlands. So, Adam, why do you find the plants that you do here and kind of nowhere else? They're hugely diverse habitats, wetlands. There's actually thousands of species even here associated with them. Take a few examples, things like snake's head fritillary, which is a very scarce flower in England. That will only do well in the right kind of soil with the right flooding regime. And they flourish here because the water levels are right, the management of them is right, a bit of grazing, a bit of haymaking. And then you've got reed beds that can't be too deep and can't be too shallow when they're planted and, and when they're harvested as well. So there's a lot of different requirements. Now to get an idea of the types of species you can see in a wetland, we're off to the ponds on site for a bit of dipping. Another member of the team, Michelle, has come and joined us. We've all got some nets and we're fishing throughout the water trying to see what we can get out. So what have we got in this tray so far, Michelle? Well, we have some beautiful caddisfly larvae. You really wouldn't be able to tell that anything was living inside there, really. I would just think it was random plants just in the water. And that's the idea, because they're hiding from their predators. They've built themselves homes, and this species use bits of stick that they cut off and then stick to their backs with their sticky spit. And as they grow, they add more and more sticks around the collar of their case until it's about April or May. 
They come to the surface, pupate, and then hatch as caddis flies. And they wait till that time because they feed on pollen from the plants and they need to wait until the flowers are out in the summer season. And we also have some ram's horn snails, but we're starting to see things like newts coming out of hibernation. The boys are out first and they're covered with their spots and have crests along their back. And they come out to try and attract the females by doing lots of little dancing and tail wagging. What else um, could we see that we haven't managed to find to put into our trays today? So we've seen the newts and the flies and the snails. We've got a few tiny water beetles. There are more in the pond, but because it's very cold, they're in a sort of dormant state. I'm surprised we haven't caught any freshwater shrimps because they're very active at this time of year and they're all pairing up. The male will actually hold on to a female shrimp and swim round with her in a pair for about a week. Something else visitors here can do in order to see more of the wildlife is to come into one of the hides. What can we see from here, Adam? At the moment, we've got some shoveler duck out there, which are very much winter visitors. A lot of these come from Eastern Europe, as far as Russia even. This winter, we've had upwards of 300 birds. We've also got wintering bittern here at the moment. Very rare species, very scarce in Britain, never mind Greater London. What attracts them here? Well, the reed beds, habitat specifically, they have to feed out of them so they feel safe. They're wintering in the reed beds at the moment. Um, We've also got widgeon grazing out on the marsh. Which ones are the widgeon? They're the sort of male birds have got the quite reddish heads with a yellow stripe over the top. Um, In flight, they've got great big white wing bars, so one of the more recognisable ducks. And at the moment, you'll see a lot of pairs of swans out there. Mute swan. Oh, yeah, I can see those. Yeah, I mean, usually there's only one or two on here, but this time of year they're all um, getting their territories sorted out and pairing up. There's a lot of sparring going on, so there's a lot of excitement. There's fights going on all the time in front of us. And are they quite entertaining to see? Yeah, 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 they're quite um, popular, really. They do get very displaced, and they'll end up all over the reserve. Now, we've done a bit of pond dipping and we've been in the hide, so we're back at the sheltered lagoon. Uh, Martin, how many wetlands are being lost... Well, we know wetlands are disappearing faster than rainforests at the moment. Many of the wetlands are in coastal areas, so um, it's easy when people are looking for extra land to build on. Coastal areas are flat, so they drain the marshes and they put huge settlements or often industry. If you look around the British Isles, then a lot of industry is associated next to the sea where there's obviously ease of transport. So there's a huge problem, and, and every time you lose a wetland, you lose all the wildlife that's associated with it. You can't just build on wetlands, you can't always drain wetlands, they're there for a purpose. What exactly would the repercussions be if we were to just lose lots of them? The repercussions both for this country and around the world are absolutely huge. You know, you've got the things like the loss of wildlife, the loss of biodiversity, and with that, that can affect the whole food chain. But also, one of the major effects of losing wetlands is the protective role that they play. So wetlands actually store water and slow it down. So when you've had these almighty thunderstorms, and we've seen flooding this year, a lot of the water that comes down is uh, trapped in wetlands, so it filters slowly through, and they act like a big sponge, slowly releasing it into the rivers and streams. Now, the issue, especially where you build on floodplains, is that all that water falls on tarmac and runs straight into the drainage system, which runs straight into the rivers, and you're inundated with all this water that the systems just can't cope with. So as we lose more and more wetlands, we lose that effect of controlling and slowing down and moderating what happens when we have heavy rainfall and storms. You know, we've seen how that's affecting people already. We've seen the number of the increase in flooding and, and the poor people that lose all their homes in this country. Now imagine what that's like over in these very flat areas like Bangladesh and the impact that's going to have is with rising sea levels and loss of wetlands.
So wetlands are important not only in maintaining unique species of wildlife, but protecting human populations from natural disasters such as flooding. So why not visit your local wetland centre and get just a glimpse of the diverse wildlife I've seen here today and also find out more about the ecosystem that protects us from being underwater. Thank you very much. That was Mira Senthalingam from The Naked Scientist talking with Martin Senior, Adam Salmon and Michelle Pennell uh, and they're from the London Wetland Centre. It was interesting, wasn't it, how he said that wetlands are actually disappearing faster than rainforests, which is quite a shocking finding, really. I, know, I think a lot of the freshwater habitats are suffering very quietly as well. We don't really hear about it that much. We're now on The Naked Scientist. We're going to go to Louisiana, which is where the Louisiana wetlands are. And Robinson Fulweiler is a researcher who works there. She's at Louisiana State University. Hello, Robinson. Hi, Chris. Thank you for joining us. First of all, most people probably don't actually know where the Louisiana wetlands are or what they are. So could you give us a bit of an introduction to them? Sure, of course. So actually, Louisiana is about 7,500 kilometers away from you all right now. Um, And I'm in the very southern part of the United States, right next to Texas. And the wetlands here are actually the largest wetland system in the United States. And they're actually bigger than the island of Cyprus, just to give you an idea of size. So they're pretty large. What what actually is special about them? Um, Well, first of all, I think probably the the vastness is definitely really important. Um, They make up, like I said, most of the wetlands in the United States. And they're twice the size of the Everglades, which is what often people think of as a big wetland system. Now, what's the actual definition of a wetland? What do we actually Um, expect to see if, if we go to one? Okay, so the main thing, I think, defining part of a wetland is the fact that there's so much water. And so a lot of the soil um, is full of water, too. And then there's a lot of these plants, which I, I heard mentioned earlier, too, that are called hydrophytes. And that's vegetation that's specifically adapted to live in this environment. And so you can have wetlands that are both freshwater or saltwater or some sort of mix, like a, a brackish wetland. And how did they get created in, in the case of the, the Louisiana wetlands? Where did they come from? Sure. So it's really interesting. So the Mississippi River, which is one of the largest rivers in the world, um, has been flooding this region for over 6,000 years. And as it does that, it sort of switches its path as it overflows. And as the water overflows, it brings um, with it sediment and nutrients, and that kind of builds land off to the side of the river. And that's how Louisiana was built. So it's been 6,000 years in the making, basically, and it's all from the Mississippi River. So it's a bit like the the same sort of delta system as you would see on, say, the Nile running past Egypt in Cairo. Yep, exactly. And in fact, Louisiana is is the seventh largest delta in the world. So given that people have now started to fiddle with the course of the Mississippi because dikes have been built, barrages, and it's being diverted, does that have a consequence for the growth of these wetlands or, or their maintenance even? Yes, it does. In fact, it has a really important negative consequence, and that is that since the river is no longer allowed to overflow its banks and bring with it that freshwater sediment and nutrients that the wetlands need, um, the river has been instead made into a pipe that now discharges directly into the Gulf of Mexico. And so without that sort of rejuvenating resource every year, um, the wetlands are slowly disappearing. I should think there's another major consequence, which I I mentioned at the beginning of the program, which is that the Mississippi is draining right through the heartland of the USA. There's a lot of agriculture going along along its banks, and and invariably that means nutrients like nitrogen and and other fertilisers getting into that water. What's the consequence for the ocean then of having what you call a pipe going straight out to sea? 
Okay, so one of the main things that we really like about wetlands is that this provides an important ecosystem service, and that is that it can filter out sediment and nutrients, right? So instead of, make, instead of letting the water flow through the wetlands, we made this pipe, and so all of the nutrients and sediment don't get filtered, and so it's a direct discharge into the Gulf of Mexico. And in fact, I, I did a little math here, and, and if you think about the amount of nitrogen coming in from the Mississippi River into the Gulf of Mexico, it's equivalent to dumping 314,000 elephants each year. So there's a lot of nitrogen coming in. That's a lot of fertilizer, isn't it? It is a lot of fertilizer. And so that means that we're going to get large phytoplankton blooms um, and sort of a larger than what we normally would see because of this extra fertilizer. Large phytoplankton blooms, and then these blooms die and sink to the bottom, and as they decompose, they take up the oxygen in the water. And this leads to hypoxia or anoxia, so that's either low oxygen or no oxygen in the, in the water. And that's really bad for any of the animals that, that live there. And is that already happening on a really large scale? Are we seeing these kind of die-offs taking place? Yeah, we are, exactly. And um, the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, it, it changes in size from year to year, but its biggest has been the size of the state of New Jersey. So, And it's all usually linked to the amount of water and, and hence the amount of nitrogen coming in from the Mississippi River. And does this mean then that if you could undam the Mississippi and allow it to have its natural course and go back through this sort of natural percolator, that you would kill lots of birds with one stone? You'd get your wetlands regenerating themselves, you'd be removing this pollution, and you would be benefiting the ocean? Definitely. I think that's a really important thing, that if we could do that, Um, except that I also think we might need some help from upstream, um, and that is that we need to work on sort of best management practices for how much nitrogen fertilizer we put down. So then we can do both. We can lower the actual amount of nitrogen in the Mississippi River, and yet, as a, and then sort of access to optimize it coming into the into the wetland and filtering out. Robinson, I have to uh, ask you, since you are in Louisiana, it's home of New Orleans, and it is Mardi Gras. What have you been up yeah. to? Well, many fun things. Um, actually, so Mardi Gras itself is actually on, it means um, Fat Tuesday in French, so it's actually on Tuesday, but the celebrations here um, begin many days earlier, um, and yesterday was my first parade. It was very exciting, lots of loud, loud colors and great music and lots of floats. In fact, lots of the floats had um, live bands, and so it was really fun. Tons of people, really good food. I would definitely recommend it. Thank you. Maybe I'll pay a visit if you, if, if you give me an invitation. Sure, you're all more than welcome. <laughs> Thank you. That's Dr. Robinson Wally Fulweiler, and she's a researcher at the Louisiana State University where she works on the ecology that goes on on the Louisiana State wetlands. And it's very interesting, you should say, about Mardi Gras, Helen, because I don't know why they don't just call it Lardi Gras and, and make it more anglicised. What do you reckon? Well, I'll be eating my pancakes anyway. And if people are late, then they can call it Tardi Gras, couldn't they? <laughs> Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, (laughs) on your way to work, or even at work? Mm -hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Helen. We're talking about the science of wetlands, but just briefly, we were talking about candles earlier, Helen. Here's another one I can't answer about candles. Uh, It's from Ivan in Norwich, and he says, how much earwax can you produce in a lifetime, and could you actually make a candle with it? So if anyone is an expert on earwax composition and candle making, perhaps you could drop us a line. If you want to join in with the programme, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, we've heard so far about how wetlands are good for biodiversity and also good places for a day out. 
But wetlands are also very good for protecting against flooding. Now, that might, may sound like a very silly idea, because surely all that water would be a problem when it comes to flood conditions. But it seems that wetlands can act like a sponge, soaking up excess water. Now, John Pygott from the UK's Environment Agency is with us to talk to, to, talk to us about the Orkborough flood defence system that he's working on, where fields have been flooded to create wetlands specifically to act as flood barriers. Now, John, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much. I thought we might start by asking you to just to set the scene for us a little bit um, to describe you know, where this um, area is that you're working on and what was the problem? Why did you feel there had to be something done in the first place? OK, the Opera project based up on the Humber estuary, which is uh, on the North Sea coast of England. The problem we've got on the Humber is principally due to sea level rise. Um, over the past 100 years, we've had about two millimetres a year of sea level rise. And we're faced with a situation where we've either got to raise defences higher and higher for the future, or alternatively, we've got to look at new ways of providing more space for the increased amounts of water. And where did the idea come from, from using land that could be flooded as a way of actually counteracting this, this rising sea level? Well, the technique of allowing uh, water onto land out of rivers has been used quite extensively in, in the UK. The difference that we've got here is this is probably the first time it's been used on this scale on an estuary. Um, the problem we're facing really is with tidal water rather than uh, high rainfall. And uh, one question that kind of leaps to mind is, um, we're on a very populated island here in the UK, how, how do you go about securing land to do something like this? Well, that's a real tricky aspect of, of this type of project. In order to make this work, you, you need very large areas of land, typically in excess of a 1,000 acres. And those sort of areas of land are not commonly available uh, in, in many parts of the UK. We're lucky on the Humber in that there are substantial areas of land like that where there isn't very much in, in terms of houses or property. Um, but it is going to be hard to find in a lot of parts of the UK. And how do you go about making the floodwaters go where you want it to go? Is, is it a case of there used to be a flood wall that you've taken down or some other kind of defence? I mean, I'm sort of intrigued to know that you can send the waters to these, these areas that you're, you're interested in. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated, as you might imagine, than uh, just taking the flood banks down. Uh, these are areas of land where uh, we've taken short sections of flood defences away and we're directing the water in at different times of the tide. Um, if you just take the defences away, it has a whole series of other knock-on effects on things like navigation. So it, it, it needs a lot more design, a lot more planning than just taking uh, sections of defences away. And I take it that this isn't just a, simply a case of providing an area that the water can flood into. It's more that there are changes that are going to take, happen, uh, take place in, in those areas of um, habitat. So what's actually going to happen when, when say, an old a field is then created, sort of turned into a wetland? Well, what we've seen on the Humber is uh, the, the site at Altborough was flooded about a year and a half ago, and already we've seen enormous amounts of sediment coming out of the river onto the old field systems, uh, and it's been really dramatic. Uh, a lot of the areas of, uh, of old fields have disappeared now under quite thick layers of mud. Uh, the mud attracts birds in. Um, the Humber's very, uh, very important internationally for birds, and when you get these areas of sediment, you get enormous numbers of, of, of wintering wildfowl and waders coming in and feeding on these new areas of mud. So it's very, very dramatic, particularly in winter. So having all this wildlife attracted into this area, that, that must be quite an attraction for, for local people. They must be quite proud of this uh, new habitat that's been created. Is, is that something that you've discovered? Uh, it's been fantastic. Uh, what we've seen in some of these areas, uh, particularly Altborough, is that people have gone from... Uh, 
farming, uh, which I don't think was was particularly uh, profitable, to starting to provide facilities for visitors. Uh, and already the area at Altborough is attracting a lot of people in for bird watching and walking and so on. Uh, and a lot of local people have now started to, to realise that there's a business to be made uh, by uh, providing tea rooms, uh, providing car parking, all kinds of things like that. So really it seems like quite a win-win situation. Are there any drawbacks that this kind of project actually kind of raise? Or, or is it really as good as it sounds? I guess the big drawback potentially is that there is a loss of, of agricultural land and I think there are concerns now about um, food security uh, in the UK. So we are talking about a permanent loss of farmland um, and perhaps in the future that might not be something that's so acceptable as it is now. And Chris, have there been any negative sentiments from people about your project? Because you said that the people who are interested in watching the birds find it fantastic. Uh, what about the people who have lost land or people who have to look over the area? Are they worried about the future of their area? It might be flooded. I think a lot of people are um, initially quite nervous about the idea of water from, from estuaries getting nearer to where they live. Uh, and that's something that we've had to manage quite carefully. We've had to spend a lot of time talking to people and helping them to understand that this is for the wider benefit of communities around the estuary uh, and that they are continuing to be protected from, from the water. But I think people are nervous about seeing flood water nearer to their houses. Well, that sounds great. Thank, thanks so much for talking to us, John. We wish you all the best for your ongoing um, project. That was John Pigott from the Environment Agency here in the UK. Thank you, Helen. Now, uh, even though people like John are trying to create new wetlands, as we've already heard, uh, actually wetlands are disappearing faster than rainforests. And Chris Durden works for the RSPB. They're trying to find ways to conserve wetlands, even in the face of a changing climate. So he's on the line with us now. Hello, Chris. Hello there. Thank you for joining us. So what, when actually to put this in perspective, what are the numbers on losses of wetlands in the UK? I was very struck by the parallels between uh, uh, the USA and uh, and the Humber and what's going on in eastern England. Uh, taking the USA first, uh, we're talking a large areas of wetlands there, in effect a large delta. And you could describe the wash and the fens as a huge delta. And the uh, losses there in the fens have been colossal over the years. Uh, 97% of all the wetlands have disappeared really over the last 400 years. But That's down to us, though, isn't it, mainly? It's down to us. And, uh, and so I think we're talking different timescales here because the big losses in the UK have happened already. Uh, and I wouldn't like to downplay the existing threats from rising sea levels, water quality, uh, water supplies, abstraction, all those kinds of things, even build development. But broadly, I think uh, conservation here has moved in recent years onto the front foot. So we're looking now at putting back wetlands from areas that they've been lost. It's a very slow, it's a very expensive process. There's all kinds of bureaucratic hurdles, as you might imagine. But progress is beginning to happen. When you put back a wetland along the lines, or you create a new one along, along the lines of what John was talking about with Orkborough, actually, is that the same as a wetland that's been there for 400 years? It won't be the same, but it can be pretty similar. And what's happening on the Humber has happened elsewhere in the eastern counties. There's a scheme on a similar scale at Freeston Shore on the Lincolnshire Wash, and that was a partnership project between the Environment Agency and the RSPB, which is now managing that nature reserve and local authorities. Several schemes in Essex, uh, which is a very intricate coast with many low-lying areas and many miles of vulnerable sea walls. And there's a particularly large project coming up at a place called Wallasey Island, uh, which is uh, 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 near Rochford, uh, quite close to the Thames. 
And here on bits of the Crouchton Roach estuary, there's a, an enormous arable island which bit by bit will become a wetland uh, over the coming decades. And again, the Environment Agency has a hand in that, so does the RSPB. Uh, these are complex, often multi-agency projects. So it looks like the future is one of pe- for people who need to be interested in birds. I think it's going to have more wetlands you know what to do with. But um, oh, why are they disappearing so fast? Uh, well, in the UK, I think they're not disappearing fast. And I'm pleased to say I think we are moving forwards into a new era now. And uh, there's a, uh, various organisations in the Fens which are creating uh, new wetlands. So the RSPB is doing it in several locations. We have a wetland at Lake and Heath Fen, which is about 300 uh, hectares in size. And that's been grown on former carrot fields. And now we get booming bitterns. So we've had cranes breeding there last year. Uh, it's a huge rebed uh, and uh, other wetland complex. I mean, We're, since you started to mention birds, I, I was actually going to ask you that. Um, when we have all these wetlands available, what sorts of bird success stories have there been thanks to this? So Lake Heath Fen is a very good example uh, you know, where um, when we took it over as carrot fields with a few reeded ditches, there was a handful of pairs of, say, reed warblers, uh, six or eight, and now there are several hundred, and the same goes for sedge warblers and, uh, and reed buntings. But I suppose it's the iconic wetland species like marsh harriers and bearded tits and bitterns we hope to attract. Bearded tits and marsh harriers are back there. Bittens have been there, but they haven't bred yet. Uh, they have very exacting needs in terms of water quality and fish supply. And if we can bring them in, I think that's a very good indicator that the quality of the wetland is very, uh, very high indeed. Is it just a question of you make the land right, get the wetland there, and then the birds just turn up by default? Or do you have to do anything else to get them back? Uh, just getting the land right, of course, is never that simple. And there's a whole range of things you have to put in place to do that. Uh, for a start, you have to make sure that surrounding areas uh, are, are not threatened by your new wetland. And you can imagine there's a whole range of hoops that you have to uh, leap through. So just add water and get your wetland. Well, not quite as simple as that. Certainly at Lake and Heath Fen, it meant planting um, several hundred thousand reeds. But most of the wildlife will turn up. And one of the most extraordinary things there is that uh, in a, a former piece of Fenland, uh, which had been carrot fields for uh, centuries, well, various ranges of uh, uh, cultivation anyway, uh, there's an extraordinary seed bank there still remaining, and many of the wetland plants uh, have appeared. And, of course, they're the building blocks, then in come the invertebrates. Uh, we have introduced some fish there, but the birds have all found their own way there themselves. I suppose that's one benefit that birds can actually get to places because they have wings. Thank you very much, Chris. You're very welcome. That's Chris Durden. He's from the RSBB telling us about the future of wetlands and how we can aim to conserve them. Now on The Naked Scientists, it's time to catch up with Diana for this week's Question of the Week. Hello and welcome to Question of the Week from The Naked Scientists with me, Diana O'Carroll. This week I've got a gassy problem. Hello, my name's Tom Gallard from London. And I'd like to ask, how is oxygen made and recycled in the International Space Station? So what can we do with old astronaut air to make it reusable? I'm Mark Hempsall, Senior Lecturer in Astronautics from the University of Bristol. question is, how is oxygen recycled and made in the International Space Station? Well, the oxygen isn't strictly recycled. Uh, the carbon dioxide that the humans breathe out is filtered out of the air with molecular sieves and it is simply dumped overboard. 
the oxygen is created from the water that comes from the air and from the wash basins and from the loos. And after that water is cleaned up, it is electrolysized. That is, an electric current is passed through it, and it is separated into hydrogen and oxygen. The hydrogen is dumped overboard. The oxygen is fed into the cabin for the crew to breathe. With the combination of special filters and a bit of water electrolysis, the ISS can make some tasty new air out of all sorts of gassy emissions from its crew. Yum! Electrolysis, incidentally, is the same process by which jewellery or cutlery is plated with lovely shiny metals. It requires a fair bit of electrical current, which is exactly what this creature seems to be able to generate. Hi, this is Robin. I'm calling from California in the USA. Uh, I had a question about electric eels. I was wondering how. Do they themselves do not get hurt by the electric shocks that they use to communicate or stun prey? And since they are in water, how far does the current carry? On question of the week, knowledge has no nose, so how does it smell? Hi, this is Thomas from Uttlesford, and I'm a science teacher in Bishop Stortford. This is my question. What is the smell of old books? The older the book, the better it smells. I'm not talking about the old mouldy smell of an ill-kept book. I'm talking about the heartwarming smell of a book you've loved and kept for 20 years. So what is the smell of old books? Does an electric eel have a battery pack? And why do old books smell so good? My favourite has to be those Penguin classics from the 50s. Mmm. Get in touch if you have any answers or questions by emailing questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com or go to the forum. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. I quite agree, Diana. I love the smell of old books as well. They're fantastic. But do you have any idea where that comes from? What is the science of old book smell? Or do you know how electric eels avoid shocking themselves? Just email question of the week at thenakedscientist.com or have a look at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Now, very quickly, Helen, um, we had a question last time you were on the programme, which was someone wrote in to say, why does my fish always swim the same way around its bowl? Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. And... Izzy, I'm very grateful to Izzy, wrote to me to tell me why she thinks it is. Um, and she says there's a simple reason why fish swim in circles and always in the same direction. There's a current in the bowl. The caller said their fish swam anti-clockwise. That means that the current in the tank is going clockwise. Go with me on this. The fish swim into the current because they get more oxygen forced into their mouths and through their gills. If the current was going anti-clockwise, the fish would swim clockwise. If they swam with the current, so using less energy to travel, they would actually end up worse off because they wouldn't get enough oxygen to make up for the energy they're using to swim at all. So it's much more efficient for them to swim into the current, and this phenomenon is known as reataxis. I mean, I have certainly seen fish in the wild swimming into currents. I always thought of, sort of thought it was because they could stay in the same place because um, quite often you see them you know, flickering away into the current. Um, but why is the current there in the tank in the first place? Well, I wrote to her and said that. Um, surely the fish swimming would make the water move in the same direction as them. And she said, no, my understanding is that when fish swim, they push the water behind them in little eddies because nothing's perfectly efficient in the natural world. So the eddies cause a spin and this makes the water travel travelling backwards um, also turn in the opposite direction to the fish's motion. And that's why you then set up a current in the opposite direction to the fish. It sounds a bit like fish and egg to me. What came first, the fish or the current? Well, actually, I think one has to put it in perspective. Often people have bubblers and things in their, in their tank, don't they? And the bubbler means the bubbles rise asymmetrically up the tank and, and this pushes the water around in circles. But I think basically she's hit the nail on the head, hasn't she? The fish are going into the current if there is one. Sounds good to me. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. 
You're listening to The Naked Scientists. Now it's time for Kitchen Science. Now, all you need this week is a detuned radio and a remote control. But don't detune your radio just yet, or you're going to miss the rest of the show. So let's go over to Ben and Dave. Hello, welcome to Kitchen Science. This week we're at Stewards Science Specialist School in Harlow, and I'm with my volunteer, Jade. Hello, Jade. Hello. What do you think of science in school? I think it's fun. Do you enjoy doing experiments? Yeah. Well, we've got a great little experiment lined up today, and it is also an experiment that you can do at home, isn't it, Dave? It is indeed, yes, Ben. So what do you need to do this one at home? What you need is a radio and a remote control or another piece of electronic gadgetry. Well, these are things that most people should have at home. So what do we need to do? Now, obviously, a lot of people will be listening to their radio right now, so should we do this after the show? Yeah, I'd wait until the end of the show, because otherwise you'll miss something important. OK, well, we have a radio set up here. We're using a remote control, but apparently we'll work with any gadget, so any electrical equipment, like maybe a, if you have a games controller, the joypad for that, would that work? I haven't tried it, but it should do. Uh, mobile phones are probably quite good as well. So what should we do with this radio? First thing you want to do is get the radio, turn it on and tune it so as you're not listening to any station at all. So you want to be in between two stations with it as quiet as possible. Jade, would you mind coming and uh, switching the radio on? Would you like to have a go at tuning it to somewhere in between two stations so we don't want to be able to hear anyone speaking or any music or anything? Okay. Okay, I think that should do us. So are you happy that you can't hear anybody else's radio show on there? Yes. Dave, you have remote control, so what's the next thing to do? Next thing to do is first take the remote control and press the buttons and see if you can hear anything. Can you hear anything, Jade? No, at the moment, no. And you are pressing the buttons on the remote? Yes. Okay, next thing to do, take the remote control, put it right on top of the radio and press the buttons. So, Jade, what's happening there? It's making a beeping sound. And that's every time you press a button? Yes. Why do you think that's happening? I don't know. So, Dave, every time we press a button on the remote control, it makes this awful noise on the radio. So what's actually happening? When you press a button, the remote control's got a flash of light at the front of it to communicate with the TV. In order to do that, some electronics has got to be turned on and some currents have got to flow inside the remote control. So when you press a button, it connects a circuit and some current flows through the remote? Yeah, and whenever an electric current starts or stops flowing, that emits radio waves. Why doesn't it send out these signals all the time when the connection's running? Because if a current's flowing slowly, the electrons in it aren't accelerating or decelerating, and you need the acceleration to emit radio waves. So it's only when you first press the button, when you first start the circuit moving? Depending exactly how electronics inside the system thing works, yes. So is this how a radio mast works, that actually sends out the signal? Yeah, a radio mask does work like that. It basically sends electric current up and down the mast repeatedly very, very fast. That emits radio waves, which you can pick up with your radio normally. But the noise this makes is an awful, scratchy, beeping noise. How can you manage to tune it to be beautiful music or, for example, really interesting science talk show? Okay, when the current starts and stops normally in the remote control, it's actually emitting radio waves in all sorts of different frequencies, everything from like a few hertz to probably hundreds of kilohertz. But a radio transmitter will only transmit a very narrow range of frequencies. So is this why we have to tune the radio to a certain frequency to get a certain radio station? Yeah, that's right, and that makes it much, much more sensitive to that frequency, so you can pick it up from a much further distance. Jade, what do you think of that? I think that's very interesting, and I wouldn't have thought of it. Well, one thing that I hear quite a lot when I'm out making radio programmes, and some of you may have heard on your speakers at home, is this sound. (laughs) 
that's the noise you hear when your mobile phone's about to go off quite often. When your mobile phone communicates with the base station so you can talk, or so the base station can tell it that someone's ringing you, it transmits at a frequency of several gigahertz. Now, the radio shouldn't be very sensitive to that, but because it's a transmitter which is really quite powerful, very, very close to it, even though the radio is not very sensitive to that frequency, it will still pick it up a bit. So you're actually listening to what your mobile phone is transmitting to the base station. So does this mean that you could tune a radio in to somebody's mobile phone and listen in on their conversation? You could tune it into the mobile phone if you had a radio which picked up the right frequency. However, mobile phones are digital, which means that instead of hearing speech, you'll actually just hear a digital noise and it'll sort of sound... <laughs> sort of noise, probably even higher pitch than that. The sort of noise you make when you accidentally phone somebody's fax, or like old dial-up modems used to make. That sort of noise, yeah, but probably a lot faster and a lot higher pitch. So, Jade, you may not have heard the mobile phone noise before, but you have now. So what do you think of that? I think it's very odd and it doesn't sound very nice. But it also was very interesting. You will find that speakers at home will pick that up and it can be quite disturbing, but it does give you a clue when your phone's about to ring. And that's all we have for Kitchen Science this week, but we'll be back with more very soon. Thanks, Ben. I hope you're all still listening. Have a go at that later if you like. And if you want to hear the sounds of a remote control and the mobile phone again, then have a look at our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science very soon. Quick question for you here, uh, Helen. This has been sent in by Norma Weber, who says, I have a question about broken dishes. My friend told me you shouldn't repair a broken dish or a dish that has a crack in it that you use for food because bacteria get in the crack and it's not safe or sanitary. Is this true? Well, I think if we think about it carefully, it, it's got to be true that bacteria can, A, get into those cracks, plus you just can't reach in there to, to scrape them out. There's no physical way of kind of cleaning them off there. Um, bits of water and food can also get into that crack, so they're going to do very nicely, thank you very much, safe full, uh, water to, to keep themselves going and food. So, yes, I mean, whether or not it's going to actually have a big effect, I don't know. I'm, I still eat, drink cups of tea with cracks in, and I haven't yet caught anything nasty. But maybe if you're worried about it, then, yeah, just... Just don't, don't, don't go there. I think it's a reasonable suggestion because, yes, you're right, you can have a bacterial banquet down the crack, couldn't you? Because you've got food getting jammed in there, as you say, and the water, and you can't physically remove the bugs, and so they, they could actually be growing in there and then contaminate food. If you, for instance, put food on the plate and store it for a period of time, it could contaminate the food, especially if you then keep, put warm food on, the bugs are going to grow very fast. Yeah, that does sound, sound like it could happen. I've got another bug question here from James McAward, or McAward, not sure how you say it, in New York, and he says, we get bacteria in our gut. Where does it come from? Is it from our mums in the womb? Does it come from the environment after we're born? Or is it dropped off by the stalk, Chris? Well, it'll probably surprise you to, to learn that we're actually passengers in our own body. So if you count the number of bacteria that live on us and in us, there are roughly 50 times as many of them as there are cells in our entire bodies. And there are roughly 10,000 trillion cells in a human. So that's a lot of bacteria. Where do they come from? Well, the answer is when a baby first pops out, if, assuming it comes out the normal way, its first taste of life is quite literally a mouth full of muck and it's its mum's muck it's bacteria and other debris that are all over the pelvic floor and perineum of the mother so when the baby comes out those bugs that are there on the mum go into the baby and they get washed down into the stomach and then into the intestine where they take root and the reason that babies can do that but in us most bacteria you swallow get killed is because in babies they don't have much stomach acid at that stage so the bacteria can very easily get in and settle down into the gut and after a few years they develop and turn into a very unique spectrum, which is almost as unique to you 
as your fingerprint is. Now, if you come out via different routes, say you have a caesarean, then the kinds of bacteria that a baby picks up will be different, and that's been demonstrated. And because of the spectrum of bacteria being a bit different, there can be consequences for um, your risk of future diseases, including things like getting allergies and also having bouts of diarrhoea. And recent studies have shown that babies born by caesarean section are actually twice as likely in their first year of life to have doses of diarrhoea and to, to have allergic reactions and things. So coming out the right way and getting a mouth full of muck unless you absolutely have to come out the wrong way is probably the best way that's the best i can probably offer on that well that's it for this week thank you very much for listening thank you very much also to our contributors this week i have to say a big thank you to robinson fullweiler to john pygott and chris durdin and also to our wonderful production team diana o'carroll ben bowsler mira synthalingham and petro minch we're back next week with one of our science Q&A shows. So as any science question goes, all you have to do is email me, chris at thenakedscientist.com, and we'll have a go at it for you. Until then, take care and have a very good week. Goodbye. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by The Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. <laughs>